On a scale of 1 to 10, how much does it hurt? How many times have you heard that from a doctor? It seems rudimentary, doesn't it? With all the imaging technology, implants and next generation medical devices available today, to ask someone to rate their own sensation of pain on a scale of 1 to 10 feels almost backwards. What is 10? What is 5? Is my 5 the same as someone else's 5? Pain is not a universally understood concept, and yet it is something that has a powerful effect on us all. Where does pain begin? Is it the stimulus itself or the anticipation of pain? In this, our final episode of our first season, I want to get to the bottom of the sensation which we spend all our lives trying to avoid, to see if a future without it could be on the horizon. So join me, Matt Millington, as we plug in to Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, are we nearing the end of pain? Hello, and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. We've reached the end of our first season, so I wanted us to go out with a bang. And what better way than to analyse the thing that tends to follow that sound, pain. We've discussed this concept a number of times already this series, whether in terms of neurotechnology or eye care, for example. But it's probably true to say that pain isn't always on the top of most health practitioners' priorities. But why? Groundbreaking new studies are constantly finding cures and treatments for ailments from cancer to COVID, but the pain that goes along with it often takes a back seat. Maybe it's because it's such a wide-reaching topic. Ask a neuroscientist about pain, and they'll start talking about neurons and spinal cord stimulation. Ask a psychologist, and they're more likely to start telling you about anticipation of pain, distraction methods, even the deep scars left by emotional pain. And beyond the mechanics of pain, what about the wide-ranging ways of treating it? From psychosomatic to powerful yet highly addictive opioids that have long been prescribed to alleviate chronic pain, but at the same time, decimating communities around the world. I had so many questions, so I decided to get three of my colleagues here at TTP together in a roundtable discussion to really get into it. And given it's the season finale, I brought back a couple of our favourite guests to help out too. The first of these is Dan Locke, who you heard on our first episode about behavioural psychology. Dan is a psychologist and human factors expert, exploring patient motivations and figuring out the design features that translate into long-term adherence to medication and therapies. Next is Hannah Claridge, who enlightened us before about the wonders of neurotech. Hannah specialises in neurotechnology and biosensing developing clinical technologies for some of the world's largest medtech companies. And last but by no means least, a newcomer to the show, David Cottenden. David is a consultant here at TTP. He also holds a master's degree in mathematics from Cambridge University and a PhD in biomechanics from UCL. David's work has encompassed everything from developing medical devices to exploring and mapping pain and drug delivery for some of the biggest pharma and biotech companies in the world. I sat them all down in the talking point here at the TTP campus in Cambridge to explore pain from basic principles. So I guess to kick us off, I would like to know, what is pain? So pain is essentially your body's way of telling you that something isn't quite right. Um, So pain is an uncomfortable sensation. Um, for example, imagine that you, uh, you go out and you touch a, a hot pan. Um, you, f- you feel pain. And the reason that you feel pain is so that you retract your hand and don't cause more damage to yourself than you've already caused. Mm-hmm. So uh, essentially, yeah, uh, essentially pain is your body telling you that, that something is wrong. So how does it tell you? What parts of the body does it tell? Is it talking directly to your brain? Is there what, what's going on inside? So there's a whole pathway, there's a whole network of nerves and neurons throughout your body to communicate pain. So uh, to start with, you, you have sensory, um, sensory neurons at your, your fingertips, attached to your organs, attached to the skin across, across your body. Um, and that's where, that's where the, the initial pressure, the initial pain, the initial sensation happens. That's how your body recognizes and interacts with its environment. 
Um, that is then turned into an electrical signal. Mm-hmm. And that electrical signal travels through your spinal cord and then up to your brain. And it's only in the brain that you really recognize that sensation of pain. Um, so there's a whole network of neurons getting that information up to your brain. And then your brain is where that is interpreted and turned into a recognition of, of pain. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of perception with pain. So that is the, the, what's actually kind of mechanically or biologically happening. But what about the psychology of pain? Dan, I guess this one's for you. Are we, are we all perceiving the same type of pain or is it different for everybody? Well, it, I guess with um, the pain that people experience is not just related to the level of sensation at the, mm-hmm. the point where the, where the pain occurs. There's, there's an interpretation that goes into it as well. Um, so the same person may feel a different level of pain depending on all sorts of other contextual factors, whether they're, you know, where, where they are, who they're with, um, what's already, what mood they're in. Um, these will all affect how much pain you experience. Mm. It's not just about the kind of direct physical sensation. You can't just say that this pinprick will hurt this much and it will always hurt this much. Yep. There'll be a difference um, depending on all sorts of other factors. So, And that's within people as well as between people. So just thinking of that pinprick, I know we've all, uh, and most people listening will probably have been jabbed for COVID fairly recently. Mm. Um, and a lot of people uh, attach quite a lot of fear to that initial jab, which often is not actually quite as bad as the, the original expectation. How big a part does expectation of pain play in, in how we perceive it? It's it, quite a big part, actually. I think acute pain, especially like, like a pinprick, is strongly influenced by expectation up to a point. Yeah. Um, and there are some interesting kind of psychology experiments where they play with expectation and, and that makes a really big difference to the pain that's experienced. One of the most interesting ones is called the body transfer illusion, where you have someone's, basically you trick someone into thinking a fake hand is their own hand. So that you hide their own hand and instead of where they expect to see their own hand, there's like a dummy hand. Mm-hmm. and they stroke your real hand and the, you can see them stroke the model at the same time and if you do that you're perfectly in sync for long enough they start to feel like that fake hand is their hand and then what they then do a bit meanly is they suddenly grab a knife and stab the fake hand what or, or they go, they make as if to do it you know i don't know if it actually goes that far and they everyone they don't need to do that do they they're just well being that's why psychology is such a fun um <laughs> fun thing to study um and what they find is that not only do people kind of flinch and, and react in this, as if it was their real hand, mm. they, they report feeling something because the brain starts that expectation process. It sends the signals down to ready itself. And, um, and I think people do report, you know, a sort of not exactly a sharp acute pain, but there's something that they, they, say, they sense something, even though it's not real. Mm. Um, and that's the expectation part. And that can have a big influence over the total level of pain that's experienced. Um, what other types of pain have we got? There's more than just physical pain. Um, I'm thinking things like phantom pain, so pain for limbs that sometimes don't exist anymore. Yeah, and I was reminded by the what, what Dan was just saying about that, actually. So phantom limb pain is something that is sometimes experienced by people who have had an, a limb amputated. Mm-hmm. Um, so the limb is no longer there, um, and yet it's very common for people to report some residual feeling in that limb. Um, I'm talking more than 80% of people who have had an amputation report some residual feeling there. Um, And many of those also report pain. And that's really challenging because how do you treat pain in a location that doesn't physically exist anymore? Mm. Um, A lot of the more more typical uh, pharmaceuticals that you might give, some of the drugs that you might give to treat pain don't always work because the mechanisms by which they work is on an underlying pain, underlying arm or leg, which is no longer present. Um, And there's one form of therapy, which uh, I think is called mirror therapy, which is very similar actually to what, what Dan was just describing where um, imagine you only have one leg because your other leg has been amputated. You can sit or lie down and place a mirror so that your healthy limb is reflected. So it looks as though you have two limbs again. Mm. And then you you move the limb that that you have full control over, the limb that exists, and your, your brain is kind of tricked into thinking that you still have two. And this is a way of 
gently reactivating almost the parts of the brain that are used to having a limb to to feel to control and that can that it seems that that can um, kind of go back to a more typical way of the brain feeling things or or jump it out of the the state that it's found itself in of feeling pain when there isn't actually pain there um because one of the hypotheses as to where phantom limb pain comes from is that it's a, a cortical remapping of some of the 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 brain itself right so um different locations in the brain are responsible for feeling different uh, kind of sensations from different parts of the body so there there is one location that is responsible for a fingertip mm-hmm. um there is a different location that's responsible for your nose a different location for your foot and the brain is used to receiving data is used to receiving information all of the time on um the the positioning of a limb mm-hmm. um even kind of gentle feelings of touch not just pain and when that information just stops it it leads to confusion um mm-hmm. and and kind of crossed messages in the brain and sometimes you can end up with that part of the brain being remapped and um kind of sensing information coming from perhaps a part of the face mm-hmm. um that's now been mapped to kind of two locations rather than just its normal location so perhaps um uh, information coming from your cheek may now go to two places instead of one and when you touch your cheek you're also accidentally creating um the sensation of pain in a limb that's no longer there wow. And it's not fully understood why that happens, um, but there's some evidence that it does. And um, yeah, having that mirror therapy is is a way that for some people is is very effective over a few weeks um, in kind of undoing some of that remapping and resetting the expectation. The perception of pain is a strange and complex thing. The phenomenon of phantom limb and phantom limb pain is relatively well known. This is where the brain perceives pain of the flesh, even when the flesh is no longer there. Pain is much more than just what's going on at surface level. It's about physical stimulus going in, but also about the brain's interpretation of that stimulus and sending messages back out into the body. Sometimes these messages are out of whack. But first I wanted to find out more about the tangible side of pain, the bit where the receptors in your skin are reacting to damage or trauma. So I brought in David Cottenden at this point to find out more. So we talked about the the perception of pain. Um, David, your research and and work has looked at the, what's going on, the mechanics of pain in the skin. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, So the, uh, the things that we've looked at have been mostly to do, as I said, with trying to decide how one should go about designing, um, Typically something like an auto-injector, mm-hmm. a thing which doesn't exist yet. Um, and one of the uh, main things that people want to achieve, of course, is that they should be as comfortable as they can be. So uh, we have uh, created tools um, at different times for different reasons uh, to try and help people predict what will happen when they uh, create a device. And typically an auto-injector, of course, will um, push a needle uh, into the skin at some speed to some depth um, and of some size at some angle. Mm-hmm. And quite a lot of different parameters you can play with, um, obviously the needle size. Um, and then it will infuse some amount of fluid at some speed. So um, what, we, what we have uh, found actually is that you can uh, use various kinds of models to understand when does damage occur through time so if you want you can you can think of it as a a sort of a a damage against time Mm -hmm. uh, graph if you will and then take that and try and understand okay well as Hannah said before we you know it's fairly well known actually where uh, nociceptors that's pain nerve endings uh, are Um, and so you can say well all right if you do this amount of damage um, in these locations through time we'd expect nerve endings to fire like this 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 Mm -hmm. this this etc and then of course you have to work out how all of that collates together and eventually ends up back in the uh, dorsal horn in in the central nervous system yeah after which essentially it becomes a question of psychology of course as dan was saying Uh, so you can understand to fair um, precision at the very least enough to understand the trends well which mm-hmm. is what you really need to make those sorts of decisions um, at the level of the peripheral nervous system so you can do something about it there and then of course it's also important that you do something about it at these higher levels as well mm-hmm. 
because obviously the peripheral nervous system doesn't know anything about expectations or yeah. what, what you had for breakfast or anything of that kind. So what is the peripheral nervous system, just to be clear? <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of complementary. It's whatever isn't the central nervous system. Right. <laughs> so um, central nervous system, I, I, this is not my area of expertise, but my understanding is it normally relates to the brain and the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. um, and then everything outside that, of course, is the peripheral nervous system. Mm -hmm. And very, very roughly, you can say, well, you've got nerves that go inwards towards the central nervous system, and you've got nerves that come outwards. And of course, we're mostly thinking about the ones that go inwards mm -hmm. when we're talking about pain. Mm. So you talked about um, sort of mapping that, uh, the function of, I guess, the skin. So sticking things in and seeing what different parameters will have what effect on, on pain. Do we all have the same equipment when it comes to our skin and pain receptors? Are we all, have, are we all experiencing, at least at a, a dermal level, pain in the same way? Well, that is a very interesting question. So there is evidence that skin varies through life and um, amongst different ethnicities, etc., um, in, in respect of most of its properties. Mm. Um, there, I haven't seen good data to show that it definitely does vary when it comes to uh, nociception, mm. pain reception. Uh, but it would be a little strange if all of these other parameters did and that didn't. Yeah. One of the things that is very, very visible and very well reported is that the uh, density and the branching structure, we'll talk about that later if you like, mm. of nerve endings varies a lot depending where you are on the body. Right. So not very surprisingly, areas where you think of as being quite sensitive, fingertips, mm -hmm. hands, that sort of thing. Um, face uh, have very high density and there are other areas like like the middle of your back for mm -hmm. example which are very very low in terms of nerve ending density mm. um, to the point where actually there are large areas where there's really nothing there right so where should you get tattooed then <laughs> for the least amount of pain oh i was going to say that really depends on what you, where you'd like to be tattooed Matt. i'm not sure i can comment on that <laughs> I mean, what sort of tattoo are we talking here? Or should well, we pass which over is that point? more painful, the, the one between the shoulder blades or one above the on the waist? That's all right. I'm going off topic. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, going to go for the, the middle of your back is a good location yeah. to poke you if right. you don't want it to hurt much. Okay. There may be other reasons too, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite well mapped out. Okay. So I guess in the, the the sort of the meat of your arm, where we all traditionally get our jabs. Yeah we think there's roughly the same amount of the same things going on in most people but you talked about other parameters that you would explore so for, for this context obviously needles what hurts more and i'm sure there's going to be a very obvious answer here but Big bigger ones. or smaller big ones hurt more <laughs> um but there's much more to it than that because what 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 the things that mostly matter are um well I'm, there's, a, there's a number of factors but the the, the key ones are the the amount of damage you do short term mm -hmm. so how big a volume is kept above uh, you know a damage threshold for how long mm. um, and there are a few things there so first of all unsurprisingly keep the damage small and it's better and there's a number of ways you can do that i mean sharp needles is the obvious one mm. um, manipulating speed is another way right so broadly speaking as you go faster the strain the size of the strain field reduces mm -hmm. um, you start to potentially cause other problems as well so it, again it's it's more complex than just you know you know, you know really 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 fast but um, generally speaking, faster means the strain field is smaller because inertia is a bigger effect compared mm. to stiffness. Um, so that's one uh, one thing. Another one is the angle you go in at. That makes a lot of difference, right? Because skin as a composite structure has very different properties depending on which direction you're trying to push or pull or poke. Mm -hmm. Nothing of that kind. Um, in fact, skin is brilliantly designed as as armor. Really, it uses a similar sort of approach to um, tank armor mm. so you have something on the outside which is thin stiff hard but because it's thin it actually bends quite easily and as you go further in you get thicker more compliant layers um, so it's a very very good way of distributing load and avoiding things penetrating you mm -hmm. and of course evolutionarily people aren't really used to bd33 gauge needles so <laughs> they kind of make it through anyway yeah but so is there an optimal angle at which you can have an injection for minimizing the pain? That isn't actually something we've looked into in full detail. We can see that it makes a difference. Um, that now, obviously, what's going to be a little interesting there is that because nerve endings are 
in a relatively narrow band depth-wise through the skin. Um, if you want to limit the amount of damage you do in that region, the best thing to do is go perpendicular because it keeps it short. But if you go in at, at an oblique angle, then what you will find happens instead is that because you're then able to take advantage of the fact that the skin is very stiff in that direction um, and easier to constrain, then in principle you can, get, you can reduce the size of the strain field for a given speed. But then you also have to have a longer needle. So it's kind of uh, something, one of those things where you'd have to actually do your sums and see where you get to. Mm. But certainly speed is a factor. So for me, my first COVID jab was not very painful. I barely noticed it. Splendid. Which was great. Um, my second COVID jab, all right, it still wasn't very painful, to be honest, but it was noticeably more painful. Do you think that was down to the technique of the, the person delivering? Because it was a different person, obviously. The technique of the person delivering the injection, could that be happening? It could be. I mean... One of, one of the, I'm, I said earlier that going faster is generally better, which is true. But one of the things that you definitely don't want to do is overshoot and hit them with the hub of the needle, right. for example. That's a bad thing. Um, or if you go too deep, you then start hitting other areas. I mean, the other thing is here, we've talked about um, injections as though there were one place you're going to. But of course, an intramuscular and a subcutaneous injection are different, yep. again, because you've got another population of... Uh, nociceptors for um, intramuscular. Mm -hmm. So that, that's another factor. Um, another thing, of course, is just pure location. You know, we're, we're talking, we're, you know, talking about density of nerve endings, so they're laid out in some nice, neat grid. They're not. Mm. You know, they're, they're a bit random. And so, I mean, when you're talking about an area where there's lots and lots and lots and lots of nerve endings, you're, you're going to get some. Mm. Whereas if you're talking about an area which is quite sparse, it is actually possible to miss them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it could have it, been luck. It could have been pure luck or it could have been more in Dan's domain and much more about what you were expecting that day or the yeah. fact you were distracted by something. Yeah. So how, how much do you think, Dan, would, would be to do with the sort of physical, the physicality of what's going into my arm versus my expectation? It's hard to say, isn't it? I think um, there's a combination. Uh, there always is, but maybe you were thinking about it more this time compared to the first time. Maybe your expectations have been set by the first experience and... You'd, you'd, you know, imagined a completely pain-free experience maybe the first time around. In fact, maybe the first time around it wasn't pain-free, but you expected it to be so painful mm. that by relatively to your expectations, it, you felt it was pain-free. Yeah. The second time around, you came in thinking this is going to be pain-free, and compared to zero, it was a lot higher. So it's hard to really say exactly what happened, but it could have been something around those. That feels right, Yeah. certainly. I think the first one I was more... I was ready for, but the second one I thought, oh, this will be absolutely fine. And then thought, I don't know, that, that, that does hurt. <laughs> I found it interesting um, when on the news you're seeing videos of, of people being injected and often you turn away and you go, oh, I don't want to see that. That, mm. that looks really painful. You, you're almost expecting it just by looking at it. You feel like, oh, that must be really painful. And the actual experience is nowhere near as bad as, yeah. as, as you would expect. Yeah. So seeing someone else hurt themselves is almost, well, it's not more painful, but it's a very different experience, well, I isn't don't know. it? Have you ever watched eye surgery? That can make you really wince. Yes. No, I mean, <laughs> if you see somebody else hurt themselves, you're, uh, maybe this is down to your level of empathy, but to me, that always, it always looks worse on someone else. Whereas if it's me, it's kind of like, oh, look at that. That's kind of, there's, there's an inside bit of my arm. That's interesting. Without getting too personal, though, maybe we can cut this, but without getting too personal... <laughs> um, it's too late for that. It's too late for that. Um, when you showed me that video of you breaking your leg... Yes. You, know? you have a video of your, yes, you breaking your leg. Yes, I Matt was swinging on a rope above a river and um, caught his foot in a branch, I think, and twisted his knee. And, and there was a distinct... You can hear a crack on the video like, of his leg breaking. And that, to me, made me feel a bit, yeah. you know, unwell. You know, even though it wasn't my leg and it was just a noise. I think that... You know, that's definitely a factor, isn't it? I mean, Shall I play it down the uh, mic? No, no, I won't do it. We don't need to make people feel very sick. Bonus content if you subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully for you all, I left the audio of my leg breaking out of the show. But let me tell you, it did hurt. But it was the snapping sound that was so indescribable. I of course showed the video to a number of people and their reaction is always the same and it might be similar to the face you're pulling right now just imagining a snapping bone. The very idea of pain can have a powerful effect on how we perceive it. It speaks to a wider phenomenon. 
those ideas of expectation, anticipation, and how preemptive sensations all affect how much pain we actually feel. I find this really fascinating. It's also what makes pain such a complex concept to understand. We don't objectively feel it the same way as our other senses. It's much more than a simple neurological or sensory reaction. So how on earth might we go about measuring pain? How do we translate an abstract idea with so many contributing factors into something tangible? More importantly, how do we treat patients based off that data? I went back to the group with this in mind. Interesting segue here. We're talking about levels of pain um, and we've, we've already established that people feel pain differently. How do we measure pain when everybody feels pain differently? So is, is, there a, is there a sort of Scoville scale or anything like that? Yeah, there's a commonly used scale. Um, I think it's a one to nine scale, VAS, where you just ask, and it's used in, doctors use it all the time, when they ask people to rate their pain on a one out of 10 or something. Mm. Um, and it's got good and bad points about it. You know, I think in, on its, in favor of, of this scale, um, it's, it's the only thing that measures the end outcome of the pain, right. as in as it's perceived, as that person currently is experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great way to know exactly how they're feeling. And if it's a continuous thing, if you're slowly increasing something and saying, let me know when it hurts or something like that, then then I can see that being quite a good scale. Mm-hmm. The, the issue is, I suppose, that you're relying on people's judgment to to give themselves room to go up and down the scale, as yeah. it were. Um, and also, you know, the way that they perceive there needs to be a benchmark really and it's hard for people mm. to, to have a benchmark in just off the first judgment that they give um but i think it's quite good for certain uses it's a bit harder when you're comparing between different people because they might have different kind of points of what they consider to be the middle of the scale mm-hmm. or you know they might think i'll save 10 for only if i was getting my leg chopped off where for other people 10 could be something a lot you know less right. severe it doesn't go up to 11 yeah, you can get that up to 11, yeah. Um, if they're having a spinal tap, for example. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Um, but the, there are kind of challenges in that you have context factors, like different times of day yeah. with different people in different locations, maybe reported differently when the sensation is actually the same. Mm. Um, so that's, that's where it has a challenge. Mm. And I think it, it's, it does correlate well, I think, with... with um, you know, more kind of passive, as in MRI type scans. I think there's, mm. I read somewhere that it was like a 0.75 correlation, which mm-hmm. seems pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good for psychology. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's not 100% nothing. What is? Um, mm-hmm. But I guess if, if, it's, if it's your, if you're um, judging your own pain at that moment in time, mm-hmm. then it's completely valid because if pain is relative, it, it doesn't really matter whether yesterday you would have given it a six and today you give it an mm-hmm. eight you're trying to gauge pain at that point in time, then I, I guess it, it would work. And I think it works for people with chronic pain because they have a much better understanding from day to day of how it was compared to the previous day, I yeah. suspect. If you use the scale often enough and you're used to a certain level of pain, it's, you're more sensitive to noticing when it's got better or worse, mm. in which case the scale has more value, I suspect. Mm. makes it difficult to compare between different people, though. Yeah. I mean, if you describe a 10 on the pain scale as the worst pain you could possibly imagine or mm. the worst pain you've experienced in your life and mm, people have had yeah. different experiences um i could imagine that looking across a population trying to gauge how painful is an experience compared mm-hmm. to an alternative experience yeah. um that that could be a very difficult thing to do with such a subjective measure yeah and i can totally imagine you know you'll get different results depending on the experience that people have had if it's for a woman who's given birth compared to one who hasn't um you may find maybe they they have different views on what extreme pain is i don't mm-hmm. know or someone who's had a horrible accident or something else or has broken their leg mm-hmm. broken their leg for example yeah. or listen to someone breaking their leg yeah that's right um so i mean one thing you could i guess if you wanted to get really detailed about it you could start to you know if you had enough data from one person you could look at what the typical range of scores they give is and mm. what the average is and what the standard deviation is and you could compare scores between people on the number of standard deviations from the average that person has rated it mm. and then maybe that'd be a way to kind of compare fairly between people taking into account their personal kind of views on what the scale is but that gets 
complicated and requires yes, a lot of data. Also, it might become quite unethical quite quickly if we weren't careful. So like, let me hurt you, hurt you with the same stimulus and see what you're doing. It depends on whether you're creating <laughs> the pain or whether it's just reporting. You can do that, though. I mean, pain studies yeah. often use um, chemicals that are found in chilli peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think it's capaskin. I might be pronouncing that wrong. Um, and they, they, put, they have different strengths. They have different mm. concentrations. They have different volumes. Yeah. And they can make sure that they are giving people the same stimulus. That doesn't mean that everybody will interpret it in the same way or feel it in the same way. But they, they can at least um, apply the same stimulus to lots of people. And similarly, with, with temperature, they can apply the same amount of heat to mm. people's forearms in an MRI scanner. Mm-hmm. It's usually ice buckets of ice water, isn't it? I think they're using a lot of pain studies. They get people to put their hands in a bucket of yeah. water with ice cubes and, and see how long they can keep their hand there. That and I, I heard that um, swearing and loud expletives actually reduce your perception of pain when doing that experiment. I think it increases your tolerance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So not necessarily reducing your perception, but enabling you to bear it better. Yeah. 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 At this point, I toyed with the idea of doing a pain measuring experiment with the group, but I don't think our HR here at TTP would have welcomed me experimenting on employees. So rather than subjecting my colleagues to a bucket of ice, I decided to move on to find out about the solutions to pain. Too often these days, we think of pain solutions as pills. In some cases, that pill is an opioid, drugs which leave patients with hugely debilitating addictions in their wake. So what are some of the alternatives? What are the new solutions coming in to treat pain? How do these work inside the body's system? I asked the group to find out. So what other um, solutions have we seen um, that are useful for pain reduction? Obviously swearing. Uh, <laughs> what other things are there that well, we're, we're seeing used? There's a bunch of other ones which which have been around for a long time and are sort of understood to varying extents. I mean, one of them is simple topical anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bit that's inconvenient is it takes a while. I tend to think of it as there's, there's three different approaches to treating pain, three mm-hmm. different ways in which you can interact with the body in this context. Um, firstly, you have the kind of chemical pathways. Yep. So that's the pharmaceuticals, whether that's via an injection, whether that's pills, whether that's a topical cream, mm-hmm. that's all interacting with the, the chemical pathways, the, the biochemistry of, of your body. Mm. Um, there's also electrical approaches to interact with the nervous system because that's how that's how the signals are actually being communicated throughout your body. That's how the nervous system works is through electrical impulses. Mm-hmm. So you can also apply electrical stimulation in the forms of TENS machines, for example, or yeah. spinal cord stimulation. And then the third approach is psychological. So mm-hmm. there are various approaches which which have been shown to be effective in, in many cases mm-hmm. um, around expectation management, around attention, around um, CBT therapy, for example. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit more. We know about opiates and there's various fairly well-documented problems um, of people becoming addicted to opiates. Um, What other alternatives are there? Um, Particularly, you mentioned the electrical solutions. Yeah, so if we focus for a moment on um, chronic pain, Mm. so spinal cord stimulation is something that's increasingly being used to treat um, chronic pain, usually of the lower back or the lower limbs. Um, So spinal cord stimulation is a therapy where you surgically insert um, some one or one or two electrodes um, into the spinal column itself Mm. um, and that you then connect that to an implanted pulse generator which is a bit like a pacemaker so it's kind of a a mini computer and battery Mm. which sits just underneath the skin Um, and you then apply some regular pulses of electricity to the spinal cord Mm. and that essentially that acts to uh, kind of mask the pain. So it doesn't remove the pain that's there. It doesn't switch it off. It doesn't switch it off. Um, the the neurons are still, the nociceptors are still registering pain. Mm. That, that information is still being passed through the spine. Um, but it, it 
modulates it and it can drown out the pain. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, um, you may feel a kind of tingling pins and needles type sensation, um, which for some people is unpleasant. For some people, they don't notice it at all. And for mm. some, it's um, it's just a gentle feeling in the background that, that doesn't bother them. Mm. Um, but essentially, these regular pulses of electricity drown out the pain signal that's there. Yeah. And as, uh, as we're getting more and more sophisticated with the pulses that, that we're playing in, so there's the shape of that electrical impulse, mm. um, we're able to continue to get that beneficial effect of drowning out the pain mm. um, with fewer and fewer side effects. Yeah. So we could, or rather you could, insert a neuromodulating device that can send various electrical signals to help drown out the pain. What, what other areas can we, um, can we think about? I guess distraction we I sort of mentioned there's there's distraction used in a in a more simplistic way isn't there to help people manage pain yeah so i think what you were talking about earlier um was probably more on, around detection than than perception mm. as in you you detect something and then decide how to interpret it and i think you know those kinds of stimulations are probably drowning out the signal itself rather than affecting it once it's been yeah. received um but distraction and, and attention kind of have a big impact on, on pain as well. And mm. um, in terms of distraction, they are, there's lots of evidence for things like breathing techniques and exercises being really useful ways to take your mind off of pain. Obviously, yeah. childbirth is another example where breathing is a massive thing. That you, you're, if you ever do NCT, they do a little teach you how to breathe mm. and, and all these exercises. And there's loads of other... Um, well, we did hypnobirthing, yeah. which was incredible. Uh, How did that work, Matt? Well, I almost thought it was kind of quackery at the beginning, honestly. I'm, you know, I'm a bit like that. But the reality, it was proven there and then in front of my face. I don't know whether it's because my wife was particularly tough, but you could hear what was going on in the other rooms. And we were very much having a different experience. But it required a lot of preparation, a lot of self-hypnosis, visualisation, and sort of preparing everyone and it wasn't just my wife, it prepared me as well. So I was calm too, which, uh, yeah, uh, this is not an advert for no birthing, but in our case, it was really powerful. Yeah, and I think those kinds of active distractions like breathing can be quite effective. I know there's evidence for breathing. I think there's less evidence for the more passive distractions like watching TV or mm. listening to music. I think that doesn't help as much. So I think it's got to be something that you actually have to do yourself. You know, I don't know whether there's evidence for you know, doing a crossword or anything like that. But right. it's, it's, you imagine that things that are more active might be more effective. And then in terms of um, other things that people do, I mean, there's a kind of misdirection mm -hmm. kind of things that go on as well. And I don't know, I think there used to be a time when it, when you were given an injection, they would say, tell you, you know, yeah. there's going to be a, a sharp scratch or, or something along those lines. And I think they don't do that anymore. They, they tend to, I don't know the degree to which ethically they're able to do it, but I do think there are times where they've told me I was thinking they were wiping alcohol wipe on my arm. I was looking away. And yeah. in fact, they, they were putting the needle in right. and I hadn't really noticed you yeah. know, because that's what I was thinking they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I think they purposely misdirect you. And sometimes they say, I'm just going to wipe your arm with alcohol, but they immediately put the needle in and they don't tell you that's coming. Yeah. I think as long as it doesn't provoke a startle response, then that's probably a good, mm -hmm. a good approach because the expectation then will be zero. And if it's not too painful, that will, that would work just fine. Yeah. Some of these techniques, particularly sort of things like CBT and DBT, um, are being kind of translated into the digital world. Do you think they're, they're, they're effective? Do you think that's going to become more commonplace? So in, in terms of kind of challenging people's perceptions through digital kind of augmented reality or, or yeah. something? Um, yeah, I think that's definitely going to be, you know, it's a, definitely a tool that people are going to use more and more. And... And you can imagine things like, you know, mirror therapy, you know, at the moment you need a mirror to do it. Would there be a way to do that? With In VR. VR, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. Maybe people are exploring it. Mm. I think behavioural therapies are, definitely have their, um, their value when it comes to things like chronic pain. Mm. Because chronic pain is, is one of those things where pain is one component, but it's, it's also very much related to mood and it's very much related to sleep. And mm. they kind of all interact in chronic pain. So people tend to, Pain goes up, sleep goes down, mood goes down, and, and they all kind of work. They all influence the other two things really mm. strongly. 
Um, I did some research once where we were talking to people who had chronic pain and there was a real, it was really marked how, you know, they were, they all had a lot of uh, issues which would come and go depending on their mood. Like right. there were people who were like in constant pain, but when they went on holiday, they kind of felt a lot better. And yeah. it wasn't that the pain wasn't real. It was just that they were taking away one of those elements. It's not just the pain. There's also the, the mood kind of angle. And if you're, kind of you don't have a job you don't really have prospects of getting a better job you don't have a lot of money or something there's there's one of the pain doctors we talked to basically said that to a certain extent pain medicine was medicalizing distress you know that it was people who had problems in other parts of their lives that was manifesting as pain alongside other issues um wow. and so there is such a massive kind of emotional element to it that i think the therapies like that which help tackle the reasons for someone's mood and also the practical help given to people to sort of find things to do which can be distractions i guess you know if you have more of a purpose in life mm -hmm. um would definitely be beneficial as well yeah so we can address pain with neurological solutions with um psychological issues what about the the sort of physicality so we've talked about needles obviously the bigger it is the more it hurts the faster it goes in the less it hurts um not sure about what angle you put it in at to hurt more or less, but potentially there's something there. Um, what other mechanisms can we use to do things like drug delivery, for example, um, beyond needles or with needles, different configurations? Well, uh, lots of different things, um, none of which is a total slam dunk, otherwise it would be um, very, very well known. Yeah. Um, so there are some things that can, can be can travel through skin transcutaneously. Mm -hmm. um, that is quite limiting in, in that skin is oddly enough really quite a good barrier yeah. for basically anything that's water-based. Mm. Um, if it weren't, we'd have fairly big problems. That, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's one thing. So I mean, some some things exploit that route. So some very common opioids um, are often administered transcutaneously. Right. Is that like a skin patch? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in some instances, people have come up with um, cunning ways to try and limit the ability for them to be misused by effectively locking them into a transcutaneous patch in, in various different ways. The problem that you sometimes have with that is that the onset is quite slow. Mm. And again, changes I know um, can make quite a difference to how people perceive their pain. So a, a rapid change is often perceived quite strongly. Um, other approaches you can take, um, I mean, microneedles is one that's been variously touted as um, wonderful by various different people over the last 20 years now, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, they've got pros and cons. Um, one of the uh, big issues is that um, without going to hollow microneedles, which have their own distinct challenges, um, the payload that you can insert is quite small because. Mm -hmm. Well, you're basically talking about coating a needle in some fashion, and there's just not that much surface area. So this is a coated needle rather than something going through a needle, a hollow needle? Uh, yeah, so solid yeah. needles um, are of that kind. They can get used for lots of other things too, but right. um, that's, that's one thing. Um, and they generally penetrate much more um, superficially. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you, again, you don't, you don't get so much. They're often very small, so the strain fields associated with them are small. The problem tends to be that because it behaves a little bit like a bed of nails, you have to give it a good thumping in order to get it to go in, right. which sort of <laughs> d uh, causes some slight diminution of the otherwise wonderful outcome. Yeah. Um, so th those are those. Obviously, you can do hollow needles. Uh, they're unavoidably a bit bigger mm. because they're hollow, and therefore you have to deal with that somehow um, and those have been very popular for some things um, they come in various kinds you get steel ones you get uh, polymer ones you you know you can get some made by microfabrication methods all sorts of things mm. pain delivery pain distraction as with so many things we've discussed in this series the state of the art in pain reduction is pretty mind-blowing but that's some very cutting-edge technology. It's unlikely that we'll all be implanted with neuromodulating devices next week. So what does the future of pain reduction look like for us? The patients? Will we have more choice over how our pain is managed in future? Or is this out of our control and totally in the hands of those that provide care? I'm wondering whether in future where, you know, as... Okay, so the patient doesn't have a huge amount of choice in the type of medication that they receive, but it feels like there's a very early 
sea change happening slightly where there may be more choice, there may be more, you may be able to offer a differentiating factor, particularly if your drug has gone off patent and there's a lot of... Yeah, will, will people compete on it, in other yeah. words? Is it something which is sufficiently valuable for, for a patient to exercise the limited choice that they have mm. there? I don't know. So, mm. I mean, one would imagine that long-term, as soon as one person, one drug company nails it for one kind of common enough product, mm. then you'll get, you'll get me too. So people, well, 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 hang on, if you can do that, why can't I have it? Yeah. The, there seem to be multiple different approaches and different ways you can, different tools you can use to solve problem, uh, solve pain for particular contexts. So, you know, should we be considering pain early on in the process when we're designing a solution to affect adherence rates in future, for example? Yeah, I think with, um, I mean, with adherence, I think obviously pain is a massive factor in terms of you know, keeping people away from using medication. If every time you use something, it makes you feel terrible, um, you're not going to want to repeat that mm -hmm. regardless of the, the long-term benefits. And yeah. especially the problem with adherence is where you have medicines which have no immediate benefit. So opioids, you immediately feel, well, within a short space of time, you, you feel the effect. Where mm -hmm. there are certain medications which are good for you, will maybe help you live another 10 years, but will not make you feel great in the short term. Yeah. And in fact, you may never really be 100% sure that it's doing any good, um, even though there may all be evidence that it is. Um, those are the ones that are the hardest to sell. And, and if they do cause pain, even if it's a small amount, that can be enough to put, to put people off yeah. using them. And that, that is a problem. So you're arguing almost from the filled prescriptions um, angle there. It's a fairly easy economic argument, if only it's evidenced. Yeah. yeah. So I guess my last question for you is, well, actually, the last question is, could we one day live in a pain-free world? But actually, I'm going to change it to, should we one day live in a pain-free world? Hannah, you look like you want to take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think that should be the goal in and of itself. Yeah. Um, I, I think... Pain has, pain has evolutionary benefits. There's a reason that, that we feel pain. Um, and in, in general, in most cases, pain is a useful way for the body to warn us about a danger, mm -hmm. often a short-term danger, um, and a way of helping us avoiding doing further damage to ourselves. So as an end goal, I don't think that avoiding all pain should be something that we strive for. Mm -hmm. However, um, in the cases of, of chronic pain, um, of, of pain as a result of uh, kind of long-term health conditions, clearly um, we need to make sure that there are appropriate treatments and that I think one of the biggest things is making sure that people are taken seriously enough and that all people are taken seriously enough mm. um, that if they're experiencing pain, um, particularly if they're experiencing chronic pain, um, which is usually defined as pain that's ongoing for three months or longer, whether it's continuous or intermittent, mm. that that is taken seriously by their physician and that, that they consider, you know, having a, that they have a range of options available to them mm. and that they consider which of those options are most appropriate in order to to reduce the level of pain to a point where they are happy to go about their daily lives mm. and, and it doesn't affect them too much. Yeah. And as we've established, there are multiple different ways of, of addressing that because pain is not a singular or constant thing. So perhaps what we're really aiming for is not a pain-free world, but a world in which pain can selectively be controlled. Mm -hmm. I mean, something I was really fascinated by earlier when Hannah was talking about it was, I mean, at the moment, the implants you're talking about are relatively non-selective. They're you know, getting the, the spinal cord on block, as it were. The point when you can be a little more selective, either physically by wrapping a smaller bundle or potentially by selective modulation, they're you know, picking out the right thing. That, at that point... We've, you know, we've got something really, really fascinating, which you know, normal pain medications don't do. They're pretty much blanket. Mm. You know, you know, probably nobody was intending to make your, your, your broken ankle um, impossible to feel, but you know, hey, hey, you know. One of the most exciting things that the field of neuromodulation, so interacting with the body from an electrical perspective, one of the doors that that opens is this ability to sense as well as to stimulate. Mm. Um, and 
that you could use the same electrodes or a second set of electrodes um, to, to sense the electrical signals that are, that are going on throughout your body all of the time mm. and to identify which of those are pathological, which of those are causing pain that you don't want, unnecessary pain, yep. and actually using that to really personalise the treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the benefits there are um, kind of improved pain reduction, but also minimizing the side effects. So there's often a fine line between um, applying too much electrical stimulation, at which point the side effects become very noticeable and very unpleasant. Mm. Um, think about having extreme pins and needles. That's, that's not a good alternative to, to the chronic pain that you started with. It's just an alternative form of chronic pain, really. Mm. Um, but if we can maximize the efficacy whilst minimizing the side effects, um, and in many cases also, um, minimizing the amount of energy that you're putting in which Mm. can then prolong battery life Mm -hmm. it can um, reduce the number of times through which you have to go through repeat surgery to replace batteries Um, plus you're giving that that truly personalized treatment and you're kind of moving away from a one size kind of fits all um, towards something really personalized Mm. I think that's a a really exciting space which is much more tractable for bioelectronic medicine compared to pharmaceuticals yeah do I hear the term precision medicine galloping this way? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Every way, Matthew. From a, um, from a sort of digital product perspective, which is obviously my background, I think what's really exciting when it comes to emotional pain and, and behavioural triggers, we're also starting to be able to get some of that feedback as well. We're starting to be able to make some of those connections to see what sort of behaviours actually exacerbate pain. Um, and you know, actually prove that emotional pain does exist and it is a physical thing and that it has as much influence as physical pain. Um, so I think we're, we're in a very interesting period where the topic of pain is not, uh, not quite so easy to define just yet, but um, I think we've all had a, a relatively good go in this session. So thank you very much, everybody. So a future without pain, is it on the horizon? Well, the question is, should it be on the horizon? I tend to agree with Hannah here. The fact is, pain is a sensory and emotional experience selected for by evolution over millions of years as being beneficial. Without it, well, we'd be in trouble. The future will be more about targeted and powerful pain management, enabling us to treat debilitating conditions which were previously only within reach of some solutions that came with very negative side effects and implications. Pain is here to stay, but not as we know it. That's all for today, and indeed this season. We've loved having you with us over this, our first season of Invent Health. We've been through everything from eye care to sustainability in healthcare, finding out how to build robots and even how to fit a hospital into your home. Big thanks to David, Dan and Hannah, and to all our guests over the past eight episodes. They've really opened my mind, and hopefully yours, to the opportunity that lies ahead for global healthcare. And while you wait for Invent Health Season 2, we'll be bringing you another podcast from us here at TTP, Invent Life Sciences, where we'll be looking at the fascinating future of biology. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It was co-written and hosted by me, Matt Millington, design and strategy consultant at TTP. It was co-written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams, Sam Zaccarino from TTP, and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.